The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. The names of those two cities are familiar to many of us, even though most of us have lived most of our lives on this side of the world and have never been anywhere close to that side of the world. That's because in August of 1945, the Allies dropped nuclear bombs on these two Japanese cities. The effect was devastating. Apart from the strongest of buildings, the cities were flattened and thousands upon thousands of people were killed. Those were the only two occasions when atomic bombs were used in combat. Yet I could give you two more names. Chernobyl, Fukushima. Those were the sites of two devastating nuclear accidents, occasions where it did great harm without anyone intending for it to. Nuclear technology is tremendously powerful. Since the end of World War II, the tremendous power of nuclear technology has been employed in a wide variety of, uh, of very helpful ways. To generate clean electricity, I think it's about 10% of the world's electricity supply is nuclear. Um, to help control agricultural pests, for desalination in various consumer products and in medical diagnosis and treatment. I won't even attempt this morning to explain the science except to say that all this power comes from processes and reactions happening at a microscopic level. All this power is contained in tiny packages. Very small things can cause devastating damage or do tremendous good. When you think of the scale of the universe, the human tongue is a very small thing. Yet the testimony of the scriptures and of our daily experience reveals that the tongue can cause tremendous damage, even by accident, or can do tremendous good. One of the things that God does for us in the Bible is to help us to appreciate the power of our speech and the potential it has to accomplish great good or great evil. The Bible has a lot to say about our tongues. In fact, in the book of Proverbs alone, there are, there are almost maybe 90, the count is around 90 Proverbs that talk about our speech. So if we're going to be pursuing holiness, if we are seeking to live as those who have been set apart for God and dedicated to his service, if we're seeking to bring glory to God by conduct which conforms to his commands and reflects his character, our speech is an area that will require particular attention. So in our pursuit of holiness, in our speech, here's how we're going to proceed. This morning we're not going to focus on a single passage. I'm going to probably land in a few and stay for a while. But we're going to be gathering from a selection of the scriptures and trying to gather that teaching into two containers. So we're going to label those two containers, appreciate and act. There are some important things that God wants us to appreciate about our speech. And then there are ways in which he's calling us to act when it comes to our speech. So, those are the containers we're going to be filling this morning. And as we do so, we also want to be filling both of those containers with a generous helping of gospel realities. Always keeping in view how Jesus covers the sins we commit with our tongues. And how he calls us to and empowers us for holiness. 
So before we dive in, I want to read a single proverb and then to pray from the scriptures. I remember being in a training session um, as we prepared to plant this church, and one of the guys training us pointed us to this proverb. This is Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. He said, that's a problem for preachers. We live in very dangerous territory. I think I have 5,000 and something words for you this morning. Our job is to preach the word, which often involves saying many words. So before I say many more words, let's pray. Father, your word says the lips of the righteous feed or shepherd many. You have commissioned me to shepherd these gathered here this morning. But I am unrighteous. Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. So faced with this task of preaching your word about our words, God, I'm both desperate and delighted to throw myself fully on Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let no corrupting talk come out of my mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's pull out that container that we're calling appreciate, and let's start to fill it with some things. Our first stop in beginning to fill this container is at the beginning of the Bible. We're going to the first chapter of Genesis. You can turn to it if you want to. I'm only going to read one section of it, but kind of having your eyes there might help you. I asked my daughter Maya's permission to share this particular story. Maya was one of these children that started speaking really well really early. Some of those who are around will remember that. One Sunday when she was probably no more than a year and a few months, uh, a young lady at church engaged her in conversation. You know the way we do with young children? And she said something like, your dress is so pretty. May I borrow it? At the time, I was holding Maya in my arms, and she kind of looked down at this young lady and very matter-of-factly said, you're too beggy-beggy. No, I have to take the blame for some of that because I would say stuff like that to her in jest when I would have things and she'd be asking, in jest, it was jest, I mean, I didn't expect her to learn to use it so well, so early. But you see, God wired us to learn language from those around us. And we don't just learn to use vocabulary, we learn how and when to use it. Last week we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1 that holiness flows from recognizing that we are in a new family and deliberately patterning our behavior on our Heavenly Father. We also learned that renewed thinking is fundamental to growing in holiness. So it would serve us to first take some time to appreciate how God himself thinks about speech. In the first chapter of the Bible, God speaks. He's the only person who speaks in that chapter. And it is good. He spoke creation into being. And then he spoke blessings over his creation. And at this point, the Bible records its first conversation. It was not a conversation with us, but it was a conversation about us. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
And let, him, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The one God who had existed for all eternity in joyful fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, communing and communicating, created humans in his image to reflect and to represent him. Now, now being made in the image of God is surely a multifaceted and mysterious concept. But one of the truths that we can discern is that, is that we are speaking creatures because God is a speaking God. While some animals can communicate in rudimentary ways, we human beings are unique among God's creatures in our tremendous capacity for language and our ability to use it in creative ways. That's because God made us uniquely in his own image. If you ask people about the purpose of speech, I would guess that one of the first thoughts most of us would have is that we speak in order to express ourselves or perhaps to communicate with others. But because speech is given to us, we can't understand its purpose without reference to the giver. Speech is not in the first place for self-expression, but for divine reflection. One of the biggest mistakes we make is thinking that our words are ours. To do with as we wish. That we have the right to say whatever we want to say. We are stewards of the words we speak, not sovereign over them. That's why we're accountable to God for every word we say, not just those we say to him, but those we say to others. Our words are a gift from a speaking God so that we would resemble him and be able to relate to him and others. So without necessarily adding a full stop, we can pencil in those two purposes for our speech based on what we see here in Genesis 1. Resemblance to God and relationship with God and others. We can fill that out a bit more and say that we've been given the gift of speech to worship and commune with God and to bless the world, particularly as we communicate with each other. And it was working. Think about the narrative of Genesis. In chapter 3, the narrative implies that God had regular conversations with Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam, the first man, expressing his God-given authority by naming the animals. And when God presents Eve to him, he speaks joyful words, praising his wife as God's beautiful gift to him. It was working. But then it went horribly wrong. Daniel Darling, in his book, Away with Words, points out, the, humans, the human race's descent into darkness began with the serpent's own twisted mis misrepresentation of God's words of instruction to his image bearers. Words after humanity's fall into sin, can now be used either to injure or inspire. Or words can now be used either to injure or inspire. This is why it's very important for us to appreciate the power of speech. We could seek to do this by kind of working from Genesis 3 and working forward in the narrative and just seeing in story after story how speech is used, how speech is used in good ways and how speech causes damage. But for this message, I want to focus your attention on the book of Proverbs. Proverbs reveals the power of, of words in human relationships through a combination of divine insight and careful observation. 
Ray Ortland, in his commentary on the Proverbs, points out that the book of Proverbs has more to say about our words than anything else it addresses in our lives, more than money, sex, or family. Wow, it's coming down. That should tell you just how concerned God is and how concerned we should be about the words we speak. When we talk, it's not just talk. Proverbs 18.21 warns us, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. God is counseling us to have a healthy respect for the tremendous power of our words. Much like nuclear technology, they can be employed to destroy or to bless. Now, some Christians have the idea that, like God's words, our words destroy and create. So they tell you things like you have to declare things for them to happen and to speak things into being, like a job or a promotion. And they'd caution you against saying you're sick or depressed, even if you are, since they believe that your words will perpetuate that reality. But that's a misunderstanding of this proverb. If you want to understand or to help someone else to understand what this proverb means, what you need to do is read it in context. Open the book of Proverbs and look at how it illustrates over and over in vivid poetic language how our words bring life, or bring destruction. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few Proverbs here. So this is Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 26, 18 to 19 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Proverbs 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 16.28 says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. And Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. There's your death and life. The damage that we do to each other and ourselves with thoughtless words, cutting remarks, pranks, outright lies, and repeated gossip, and the life and blessing we bring when our words are gentle and caring, true and gracious, good and wise. Words stream from our mouths every day, and that stream can either nourish or it can poison. We live in the age of fake news and alternative facts and conspiracy theories, and technology allows us to share all of this widely in seconds. And we're seeing the consequence of a loss of trust and a loss of truth as the world becomes increasingly polarized. There have been a number of stories that I'm sure you would have heard of people who have died from COVID-19 who received, believed, and shared stories that claimed that the whole pandemic was a hoax. This year, I've heard increasing calls to eliminate online abuse and cyberbullying and threats because of the link between these behaviors and a number of suicides by prominent persons. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Much like those calls for change, you might be thinking, armed with these truths from Proverbs, why don't we just make wise and more loving choices? One article I read on cyberbullying ended with this simple assertion. Being kind is one of the easiest things to do. Well, is it? This is where we need to appreciate the problem with our speech.
We've looked at the purpose of speech. We've looked at the power of speech. And now, in light of that kind of very simplistic call, say, well, let's just be kind. What we really need to appreciate now is the problem with our speech. Let me read for you from Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The problem with our speech is a heart issue. We'd like to convince ourselves that in our worst moments, in our worst outbursts, that we're acting out of character, and this is not a reflection of who we really are, or that we can switch that kind of thing off at will. But Jesus tells us that our sinful hearts burst their dams and overflow into sinful words. Now, some of us have better impulse control than others. We might be a bit more conflict-averse, so we have less outbursts. But that doesn't get us off the hook. The problem with our speech is not just with the things we say, it's with the things we fail to say. We sin when we conceal our hearts with silence and with lies. Are you okay? I'm fine. What's wrong? Nothing. Proverbs 10.18 says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. In Leviticus 19.17-18, God commands, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. We sin when we fail to bless others with our words, in the ways God calls us to, by encouraging and honoring them, or even rebuking and confronting others. That last one continues to be a struggle of mine. I don't enjoy confrontation. I often avoid it. Yeah, it's probably easy up here. You know, it's probably easy for me to you know, kind of say hard things when I'm up here. But I'm grateful for the way Paul David Tripp has confronted me about this one in one of his books. And it's, interestingly enough, he does so with some of the same truths we've been contemplating coming from last week's sermon. He says, confrontation flows out of a recognition of our identity as the children of God. We have been chosen by him, and our lives are no longer our own. Everything we are and have belongs to him. And we will find our greatest joy in relationships when we recognize that they too belong to him. We are the Lord's. They are the Lord's. The situation is the Lord's. Loving confrontation is rooted in an awareness that we are God's children, and our goal is to be active in his purposes for us. To do less is to forget who we are. We sin with the words we say and with the words we withhold. And the problem with our speech leads to a problem with God. Jesus warns us in Matthew 12, 36-37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We are all inescapably guilty before the God who gave us the gift of speech and to whom we must give an account. It's when we're convinced of the seriousness of the problem with our speech that we will appreciate the purchase of our speech. 
Jesus paid for the sins we commit with our tongues, and he bought us for himself, including our tongues. Even though Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, God in his grace kept on speaking to them and to their descendants, speaking promises of redemption. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that for generations he spoke through the prophets, but his speaking culminated in the person of Jesus, the perfect word of God, and the ultimate revelation of God's person and his heart towards sinners. At Jesus' baptism, the Father spoke words of approval over his Son. But at the cross, the Father stopped speaking to him altogether. That's because Jesus took on himself all of our sins, including the sins we commit with our tongues. He paid for our sinful speech. And now his blood speaks words of forgiveness over us. If you're not following Jesus, the good news is that if you cry out to God for salvation, right now, even before the end of this message, You can know that he will receive you because he rejected Jesus in that moment. That is what he promised and he never lies. If you belong to Jesus and this morning you're seeing the ugliness of your continued sin, don't let that lead you to wonder whether God will continue to love you. Ray Ortland reminds us of this comforting truth. God stopped communicating acceptance to his son so that he would never stop communicating acceptance to us. That's a truth that you can rest in as you run towards holiness. Our Father has given us his word so that we might appreciate the purpose and the power of speech and the problem with our speech and the purchase of our speech. That appreciation must lead us to act. As the Apostle Paul argues, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let's consider how the scriptures call us to act in regard to our speech. So, please turn in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to camp here just for a little bit as we work out this, uh, as we kind of fill this act container. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Last week, I pointed out that the Christian life is a therefore life. We see that here again. Christian ethics are based not just on Jesus' example, but on the salvation he has accomplished and the power he gives for obedience. All the instructions that Paul gives between Ephesians chapter 4 and 6 are built on the gospel truths that are laid down in chapters 1 through 3. That's why that therefore is there in 4 verse 1. And this first instruction is an overarching one. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So if we have been called to holiness, what does that look like to pursue holiness in our speech? Throughout the next three chapters, Paul will give specific commands about many things, including our speech. But let's pick up in verse 17 of chapter 4. Now I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to, the former, to your former manner of life, 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I didn't want to jump over this section uh, to go to more specific and granular instructions about speech. You see, obedience is hard. It's a war within us. And often in the heat of the battle, we forget that we are not alone. And that we're not called to willpower our way to holiness. So here Paul echoes some of the same truths we were grappling with last week in 1 Peter 1 that we need to hear often. We need to hear them over and over again. There's a way that the world lives. And it's a futile and ignorant way of living. We must no longer live that way. Instead, we are to put off our old self with its lifestyle and desires and to put on the new self. We can do this because God has made us new creatures and is renewing our thinking. That section was still general instructions. But what you're going to see here is Paul applying this put-off, put-on paradigm to specific areas of our lives. Now we can extract the instructions here related to our speech. So let's look at a few verses. We're going to continue looking through chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and we want to reckon with them a bit. So look at verse 25 in your Bibles. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now look over in chapter 5 at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What Paul is doing here for us is he's fleshing out what it looks like to pursue holiness in our speech. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. These are just examples. Notice the speech patterns that we are to put off. Lying, corrupt talk or foul and abusive language, obscene talk, wasteful and idiotic conversation, and crude joking. And what are we called to put on? Truthful speech, grace-filled words that are well-chosen for the moment, and thanksgiving. These are the things that should characterize our speech as believers. And notice, this is not just a call to be a decent person. There are a lot of decent people in this world who you won't hear say a bad word. But we are called to be deliberately seeking to honor God and to love and build up others as we talk to them. That posture is distinctly Christian. God's grace comes through conversation, sorry, God's grace through conversation comes in various forms. Comfort, encouragement, affirmation, thoughtful questions, appropriate humor, warning, correction. But it should be that people encounter God in the ways that are fitting in the moment when they talk to us. So that means we don't get to lie when it, we're afraid that somebody we're, when we're afraid of somebody's response or when we really don't want to offend them. We don't get a pass releasing us from gracious speech when we're tired or when the provocation passes a certain point or when our children jump up and down on our last nerve. We don't get to weaponize our words even subtly when we feel, that, when we feel attacked. So we need to talk about social media then. Do you realize 
that these commands apply to what you post or tweet, how you disagree, what you like or repost or share, and the opinions that you express via social media? Imagine if you applied this filter to your social media use, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Imagine how different your social media feeds would be if you actually used your voice this way. It's not that you'd no longer be able to engage with the issues of the day, issues of injustice and suffering, but the way you talk about them would be different. What you bring to each conversation would be different, seen in the way you seek to move people away from ranting and acrimony towards grace and truth. Social media seems to amplify particular temptations. The appearance of anonymity, or, or at least anonymity with people who are far away, can make us forget the reality of accountability to God. I'm convinced that the presence of an audience for every argument tempts us towards aiming to win at any cost. In the stadium of social media, friends can become combatants. And with those we don't know, we can forget that there are real people behind the profile pics, people made in the image of God. They might be making a bad argument or may hold hateful or harmful views, but that doesn't give us the right to demean or dismiss them. We are still called to love others by assuming the best and giving them the benefit of the doubt. A couple weeks ago, a prominent church quickly removed a social media post and issued this apology. I've, I've removed their name just to protect them. Earlier today, a staff member accidentally posted on this account personal comments about the U.S. presidential debate that were meant for a personal account. Prominent church does not comment on partisan politics and, and, and apologizes. These comments do not represent the views of prominent church. Now, I take no issue with what churches think they should or should not comment on, but I do have serious questions about what we say as Christians and how we say it. You see, perhaps at the root of it, the problem is that we see social media as our voice. We think that we have personal accounts, places where we can say what we want to say. But we forget that we are owned. When Jesus bought you, he bought your voice too. There's no zone in which you operate as an autonomous individual, simply free to have your own opinions. Now, of course, we can have preferences. There are many things in the world that are not moral issues. But the truth Jesus reveals about anything should shape our opinion about it. And the character of Jesus should shape how we express that opinion. Your opinions are supposed to glorify Christ. He bought your voice to reflect his character and to represent his kingdom. It's so easy to quickly fire off a message or a reply, forgetting that we are posting things that God will regard for all eternity. Earlier today, a member of my body, a representative of my kingdom, posted comments without thinking about how they reflect on me. They have been freely forgiven, but these comments do not represent the grace and truth of Jesus. We are called to holiness in our speech. But how can we respond to such an unyielding standard, knowing ourselves as we do, and knowing that we cannot possibly measure up? What I want to do for you as I bring this sermon to a close is to lay out some steps that you can take to pursue holiness in your speech. 
No, these are not sequential and they're not meant to be exhaustive. What I've been trying to do as I process this message is just think of some of the ways God has helped me to grow and just see if I can itemize things that have really made a difference. So what I'm trying to flesh out then is what renewed thinking and behavior looks like. So the first thing is to embrace God's standard as our own. That means we need to stop making excuses for the many ways in which we fail to be holy. Our speech sins are not a product of our personality. They're a product of our unbelief. It means we begin to aim for God's standard and not some lesser one that we've invented for ourselves. Another thing that's really helpful is embracing the Spirit's conviction. I, I remember decades ago, ago I, had, I had a realization that has really served me, and it changed my posture towards conviction. And it was, I, I, what I realized was that the Holy Spirit does not make me aware of my sin in order to make me feel condemned. His illuminating work often precedes His transforming work. He points out our sin so that we can see it and turn away from it. Next, we need to build the habit of confessing our speech sins, both to God and to those we've sinned against. What confession does is it proclaims that what God says is true. When we cover up or ignore our sins, we minimize the importance of holiness. Confession builds conviction, and it positions us to receive God's grace. So we read in Ephesians about putting off falsehood. One version of falsehood that we must put off is pretending that we are perfect. And it's particularly discouraging for those we sin against, especially when there's a power differential in the relationship. So when we're talking about relationships between employers and employees, between parents and children, between teachers and students, those relationships where we have greater power, we need to be particularly diligent and sensitive to confess our sins to others. Many of us were never taught how to confess sin, how to take responsibility for what we've done without making excuses for it. You know, well, I shouted at you because of what you said to me. You know, kind of way where we, where it, it sounds a little bit like an apology, but really it's a blame statement. It's really saying you are responsible for my sin. I've struggled with that with my children. I tell you the truth. I see their sin so much more clearly than I see mine. So sometimes I'm attempting to apologize and then I have to apologize for the apology that I just gave because... I really just said to them, you made me do this. <laughs> but slowly I'm learning. We'll also be greatly helped by asking for and welcoming accountability and input. Humbly asking those around us who love us to help us to see ourselves and our shortcomings, to encourage us, and to help us to celebrate progress. This is one of the reasons that we have each other in the local church. We can welcome this kind of transparency because we are already fully loved by the one who sees everything that's broken in us and is patiently working to shape us in his image. Another very profitable thing we can learn to do is to slow down. James 1.19 counsels us, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I mean, this definitely applies when we are tempted towards an angry response in a situation. But it's also good counsel for social media. You know, sometimes we feel like we need to just, you know, we can't miss a beat. But, and, and this slowing down is not so much taking a breath and counting to ten. It's giving yourself time to pray, to ask for the help of God's Spirit, to confess your weakness and the temptations that you're feeling in the moment, 
and to call to mind scriptures that remind you of what pleases God so that you can put off ungodly speech and put on godly speech. Two more. This one is really important. Make an effort to learn what pleases God. One of the things we've been challenging in this series is a kind of passivity that says, okay, God, okay, God, and then just doesn't do anything else. Speech is such a vast area of our lives. We have barely scratched the surface today. So there's several ways you can do this. One thing you can do this week is just take the book of Proverbs and walk through it and just underline everything it says about speech. Maybe put a star beside the ones that hit you particularly hard and memorize those. Because what you're trying to do is put things in you that you can now call to mind in moments and remind yourself of what God's Word says. But beyond that, I recommend reading a book or two about communication. You see, the thing about reading is that reading extends our learning. It helps us to think about things and it helps us to pray them through over a significant period of time. It's one of the ways that we sit at the feet of those God has gifted to teach. So if you're going to read only one book on communication, I recommend Respect the Image by Tim Shorey. I served under Tim in my pastoral internship in the U.S. Uh, last year, he gathered the wisdom he has gained from nearly 40 years of pastoral ministry into this book. This was actually, I think, his first book. Um, what I'm going to do, uh, there are a number of books we are aware of that have helped us. I'm going to, uh, in posting the sermon, I'm going to post resources that we can point you to. I've seen books on parenting with words of grace that I've started for myself. Um, books on practicing affirmation. I read the book on practicing affirmation. It was very good, very challenging. And what it does is it helps you to know what godly speech looks like. Because what we're called to is not just to put off something, but to put on something. And you can't do that if you don't know what it is. So that was very helpful. So I'll make sure you get a listing of resources um, when I post the sermon, just kind of in the blog notes for the sermon. Finally, resolve to please God in this area. Resolve and act. Put off speech that displeases God and put on speech that pleases Him. What I'm calling for here is what Kevin DeYoung describes as spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. Depend on God's Spirit. Remember the good news of the Father's love for you in Christ. Trust in God's promises for your future. And discipline and direct your tongue. God has spoken to us today through his word so that we will appreciate how he thinks about speech and so that we, the people he has redeemed, will act in obedience to his commands in this area. Our speech is to reflect his character and to bless those around us. And that is what we must pursue together. In order to do so, we must repent. We must turn away from our sin, resolve to forsake it in the strength that God provides, and turn to God. So what I want to end this message with is just, I'm trying to just give you a model prayer of repentance. My plan is to do that at the end of each of these sermons in this series. My hope is that these prayers will articulate the cry of your heart in response to the Word of God and also give you some handles for what repentance looks like. So, let's pray. Father, I have sinned over and over again with my words. I've used my words to try to shape the world the way I want it to be. I confess that I want to be liked. I want to be respected. I want to be protected. 
I want to be heard and understood. I want comfort. I want to be avenged. But I have elevated these desires above what pleases you and disregarded your commands. I have treated my words as if they belong to me. I've used them to attack and belittle people made in your image. I've been harsh. I've threatened and used obscenities. I've lied to and manipulated others. I have been quick to speak, quick to reply, quick to vent my anger, quick to argue in order to defend my position and express my own importance. I've acted like a fool and done tremendous damage to others, including those I love the most. Thank you, Jesus, that you never once sinned with your words. Thank you, Jesus, that you always said what pleases God. Thank you for giving me your righteous record. Thank you that you took every sinful word that I have ever spoken and will ever speak with you to the cross. Thank you that you faced the wrath that I deserve for the sins of my tongue. Thank you that your blood speaks better words over me. Words of forgiveness and sanctification. Help me, Lord, to live as one whose words have been set apart for your glory and for the good of others. Help me not to continue to casually or maliciously speak words that you died to atone for. Help me to acknowledge and confess the sinful words I speak. May my tongue be a fountain of life for Christ's sake. Amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.